3: Well, New Seven's I-Team has uncovered shocking new evidence in connection with the hanging death of a Montgomery County youth. Police say it was suicide. The family says it was a lynching.
4: The evidence raises serious questions about how thorough police were in their investigation.
1: Two more forensic experts have now weighed in to say the Montgomery County Police botched an investigation into what could have been a lynching in that county. On July 31st,
2: 1986, Keith Warren was found dead, hanging from a tree. He was a 19-year-old Black man, only weeks away from starting his freshman year of college. Keith Warren's death would set off a chain of events that is still taking place even now. A family search for answers, decades of stonewalling from the police, and an ongoing battle for accountability and justice. I'm Alicia Garza, organizer and co founder of Black Lives Matter, and this is Uprooted, the companion to the Discovery Plus series of the same name. Over the course of six episodes, we will dive into the Keith Warren case, looking into Keith's life and death, and addressing some of the systemic failures that have prevented him from getting justice. We will also sit down with experts, including activists, lawyers, filmmakers, and mental health professionals to discuss where these inequities still exist today and discuss the journey forward. In this episode, we'll begin by exploring what happened to Keith and where his investigation went wrong. We'll also talk about how the handling of his case is emblematic of a policing system with a long legacy of racism it has yet to deal with. Later, we will hear from Averill Speaks, the showrunner and director of Uprooted, the miniseries, who will share a bit about her experience with Keith's case and the making of the documentary. This is Uprooted. It was a hot day in July when Rodney Kendall was at the neighborhood clubhouse, hanging out by the pool. That's when he got a request.
4: I was by the fence and just talking to friends, and someone came down and asked me if I could identify a body.
2: At the time, Rodney figured it would be like what he'd seen in the movies. There'd be a body bag. They'd open it up. He would make an ID. Instead, the police took Rodney out 20 to 30 yards behind the building into a clearing within the woods.
4: When I walked up, the scene was not sealed off. I was escorted back to where Keith was. There was no no tape, no nothing.
2: But Keith wasn't in a body bag. He was hanging from a tree.
4: I remember I could, the noose was up really tight on his neck. His head was leaned to the side, but his mouth was open. And that's what I remember a lot, the bugs and the maggots in his mouth. I can not believe what I was saying. He um, had a flannel shirt on. He had tennis shoes on, which you never saw Keith in tennis shoes.
2: Rodney knew Keith from the neighborhood. They were around the same age. And it was immediately clear to him that Keith had not done this to himself.
4: I can say 100% that I don't believe Keith committed suicide.
2: It just didn't seem like something the Keith he knew
4: could do. I never saw Keith in a bad mood. I never saw Keith unhappy. Keith was a nice guy. He was always happy, uh, joking around. I knew him. This isn't just you know me coming on the scene and it's a stranger. I knew him. After
2: Rodney ID'd the body, he headed back to the clubhouse in a daze.
4: When I came out of the woods, a the, uh, lot of the officers were standing around. They were talking about where they were going to lunch. And that shocked me as well. That, you know, somebody's back there in a tree, and you're worried about well, what's, that? what's for lunch.
2: Not one of the policemen there asked him for a statement.
4: No one came. No one ever came to talk to me as far as a police officer is concerned. And the police don't give a damn.
2: Keith's body was found in the woods of Montgomery County, Maryland, a suburb just outside of Washington,
1: D.C. You can't look at the Keith Warren story from your own lens where you sit today. You have to look at what it was in 1986.
2: Dell Waters was the investigative reporter who first covered Keith's death. And in
1: 1986, Washington was different. Predominantly Black. Washington, D.C., predominantly white suburbs.
2: And these majority white suburbs?
1: More and more Black families were moving in. Montgomery County was was changing, and did it go peacefully? About as peacefully as it's going right now. You know, whenever America goes through a demographic shift, there's trouble.
2: But while trouble was brewing in the suburbs, the public's attention remained on D.C. and its
1: problems. It was on crack. It was on all the social ills of Washington, D.C. And that allowed the police departments in the suburbs to do things that we probably now know that they did, but couldn't prove. We had actually been working on a story at that time about lynchings because they weren't that rare in this area. And it wasn't as long ago as people would have thought. We started asking the questions that we believed at the time that police should be asking, was it possible to lynch somebody in the suburbs of Washington?
2: At the time, The Ku Klux Klan was also known to have a presence in the area.
1: 60 Minutes did a piece on the Prince George's County Police Department, the next county over, as being one of the most racist counties in America when it came to cops.
2: In neighborhoods with clear racial animosity, there are always unspoken rules. There are white areas where black kids know not to go, lines they know not to cross. But Keith wasn't afraid to break some of those rules.
1: Here you had this young Black kid dating white girls. And it was still taboo at that time in that neighborhood.
2: Keith was popular. He hung out mostly with white kids. They'd go to pep rallies together. They'd come over to his house and listen to U2 albums. It's safe to say that wasn't looked upon kindly in a racist town. And it would later help explain why Dell Walters and others say the police failed to take his case seriously.
1: And being Black gives you a different lens. And that lens then says to you first, was this child lynched? Was it racist? Was there racism in the area at the time? Was there a Klan? All the questions that we're asking right now are the first questions that Black people would ask. And sometimes the last questions that white people would ask. And that's the difference. There were problems with the investigation from the get-go.
2: Rodney, who ID'd Keith's body, wasn't the first to notice that things seemed amiss. Dallas Lipp was the EMT who initially answered the call. The dispatch sent him to an address at the edge of the Georgian Colonies neighborhood, telling him to look for a suicide by hanging.
3: As soon as we got to the scene and we stopped, I started looking at the scene. And right away, it struck me as not making sense for a suicide. The configuration of the rope that he was hanging on was very unusual. And as I'm sitting there looking at this, I'm just realizing that this is not the way anybody who's thinking about committing suicide is going to configure a rope. But he didn't want to believe it. I was trying to sort of rationalize how he could have done this to himself. And I was talking to the other crew members that were there, people with experience, and I'm saying, can you see how he could have done this to himself? And they're like, no, not really. It was
2: too late to provide life-saving procedures by the time they'd arrived. Keith was already dead. When Dallas headed home that night, he couldn't get the scene out of his mind.
3: So I watched the evening news around dinner time, thinking, okay, maybe I'll see something. So I'm like flipping back and forth, thinking it's gonna be like one of the first stories, nothing. And then that night for the late news, it's still nothing. And then the next day I got up and
2: nothing. — Keith's death was virtually ignored by the media. When Dallas finally did see coverage of Keith's killing, it was a small mention in a local paper calling his death a suicide. That's when Dallas knew that the news and the police combined were going to brush this case under the rug. —
3: The scene itself showed that there was a problem here that needed to be understood. But they just checked the boxes to make it a suicide, and then it went away because Keith and his family didn't have any value. And that's outrageous to me.
1: The fact that it wasn't covered speaks to the racism of the time. Again, Del Walters. I mean, imagine that this was a young white kid hanging from a tree in a black neighborhood. They would still have the squad cars parked out there. This set off so many different alarm bells inside our own unit that we found it impossible that they did not look at it more seriously. And it was offensive.
2: The EMTs secured the scene and left it in the hands of the police. But Keith's body never made it to the medical examiner's office. An autopsy was never performed. In fact, the body was transported directly to a funeral home and embalmed, before Keith's mother was even notified of his death.
4: The kind of practical duty of law enforcement is also to assess whether in fact the crime has happened.
2: This is Damon Hewitt, the president and executive director of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under
4: Law. And that means an investigation, and you can't conduct an investigation unless you assess what happened in as close to real time as possible unless you collect evidence. You can't trample over a crime scene, allow folks to spoil the evidence, and sometimes spoil the evidence yourselves, like in the case of Keith Warren, ordering his body to be embalmed without an autopsy, uh, without actually seeing, you know, what happened.
2: There are a few procedures that go hand in hand with any proper investigation. First, the area is secured. Remember, Rodney walked up to a scene that had no tape.
4: The scene was not sealed off. There was no, no tape, no nothing.
2: Then there's the determination of the crime. Is this an accident, a suicide, a homicide? The scene is supposed to be documented. Then the evidence should be recorded and preserved. Instead, the tree Keith was hanging from was chopped down soon after. The rope that was used, rather than being preserved and cataloged, The police gave it to his family the very next
1: day. They ruled it was suicide so quickly, it was impossible. Everything about that is wrong. And if Rodney had been interviewed when he first ID'd Keith's
2: body, he would have told police that the tennis shoes Keith was wearing weren't his. Everyone who knew Keith knew he only ever wore his beloved Timberlands.
1: So basically, they want you to believe that Keith Warren hanged himself and then said, you know what? I'm going to change my clothes after I hang myself and then hang myself again or die later. This story didn't make sense from day one, doesn't make sense now.
2: Today, over 30 years later, Keith's family is still asking questions. They want to change his death certificate from stating his cause of death as suicide to undetermined. It's the very first step to righting a wrong, and to possibly getting more answers. It's one of the smallest things they can ask for, but still proving almost impossible
1: to get. What needs to happen is they need to reopen the investigation, bring in people that look at it with a different lens. You know, for instance, we were talking about the difference between Montgomery County then and Montgomery County now. You need somebody that was there in 1986. They can tell you what Montgomery County was like. The problem with
2: looking into Keith's case now is that all the procedures were ignored back in 1986. The scene was never secured. Evidence was tampered with instead of being sealed and filed away. But beyond that, the police force still seems unwilling to try. Montgomery County Police Department has refused to reopen the case. And their apparent refusal to revisit the facts is a strong indication of how they'll continue to treat cases of murdered Black men.
1: It's incumbent upon law enforcement to do its job and solve these crimes with a gravity that the crime dictates. And I don't think we've seen that yet. Once again, Dell Walters. If you don't fix the past, you can't recognize the present. And that's the problem that police departments have when it comes to dealing with Black America. Black America can't forget the past.
2: So far, in this episode, we've introduced Keith Warren, a 19-year-old college-bound Black man who was found hanging from a tree in Montgomery County, Maryland, in 1986. We've heard a bit about the cultural context of 1986 Montgomery County, and we've also exposed some of the missteps related to the investigation. Up next, we'll hear from Averill Speaks, the showrunner and director of Uprooted, the miniseries, to talk more about the Keith Warren case and the process of making this documentary behind the scenes. Avril Speaks. It is so, so wonderful to talk with you today. Let's just jump in. You know, this case is so interesting and it's unique in a lot of ways. I mean, the history of this country, right, has stories of lynchings, all throughout it. There are so many that we never hear about, that we never learn about. But in this one, there are some really unique aspects that I think come to the forefront. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about what grabbed you about this case in particular.
0: Yeah, I think that this particular story, there's several, I think, points of interest to the story. One being that this happened 35 years ago, And to this day, this family is still seeking answers as to what happened. I think it's also interesting that there are so many, uh, there's so many mysterious things about this particular case. There's the sort of lynching element of Keith Warren being found on a tree, but then there's also this element of the police and their involvement and their lack of an investigation when you start looking into it, there's so many pieces of this story that don't add up in terms of why was it done that way? And I think the further you dig into the story, it just raises more more questions. And you're like, but wait, what? You know, by the time you get to a certain point and you're like, that did not happen. Uh-huh. And the, the crazy thing about it is that, again, you mentioned the the history of this country. You know, it's like surprising, but also not so... Like we've, we've seen examples of elements of this case several times, unfortunately. But this case in particular was just really interesting because of the sort of the cross issues Mm -hmm. with lynching, police, you know, police corruption, racism. It's very layered. It's Mm -hmm. a very layered story. And so I just felt like it was really something interesting to dive into. So I'm wondering if we can zoom out a
2: little bit just so that people listening can really understand what does it take to bring out all of this richness and layers? How did you even approach working on a story like this?
0: Well, I will say that the first approach in all of this was the family and making sure that we had full you know, cooperation from the family, particularly because we chose to anchor this story in... His sister, and you know, his sister Sherry Warren, and to anchor it in, you know, in her perspective, because it, it's been 35 years, and and much of those 35 years, it's been Sherry's mother, Mary Cooey, who has been leading this charge of trying to find out what happened to her son. And Mary Cooey passed in 2009, and since that time, it's this has been, you know, Sherry's sole burden, if you will this has been her journey. So we decided to anchor the story in Sherry's perspective. And so in large part, our journey in the making of this started with Sherry and having many conversations with her, having her recall her memories of what happened, but also, you know, the family was a wealth of information as to what happened. Obviously they were there, but also Mary Cooey kept very, very meticulous notes. She was not someone who by any means was gonna let this fall by the wayside. And so every year of this, every single day, she was always sending out letters and correspondence to people. So we have documents upon documents upon documents of you know of pretty much everything that has happened within the last 30, 35 years in terms of who they've reached out to and who they've been in communication with in order to get help. On this matter, so a lot of the the initial sort of preparation for this series was digging through a lot of those documents and trying to put to get put the pieces together. And so we ha- we we also have a research team. We have a um, you know we had a fairly small crew, but a very efficient research team. We had a researcher. We have a writer who you know just really helped kind of put the story together and put the pieces together. Cause it's been 35 years, you know, the, the writer and I, we had to get one of those big, you know, we had to go like to an office and get one of those big boards like whiteboards, and, yeah, like, the whiteboard <laughs> and was like, okay, wait, now what happened? You know? And we had to literally write out, you know, every single day, every moment. And, but, you know, and and I will say also that Going back again to Mary Cooey, so much of putting the pieces together was attributed to her notes, her note taking, her saving all these documents. Even the way that we were able to put together those, you know, days and moments before his death were largely in part, you know, due to Mary Cooey's notes on what happened. Did you face any resistance to collecting the
2: information that you needed to make this such a layered story?
0: There are a lot of people who are resistant to talk about what happened. And, you know, I say it all the time, but even down to the people he knew, his friends won't talk, you know. And it, it just brings up those questions of the police immediately ruled this a suicide, and, you know, if this is a suicide, then what are you afraid of? You know, if it's if it's a suicide, why can't we just say, OK, well, this is what happened. It's sad. Mm-hmm. It's tragic. And move on from there. But the, we we ran into a lot of difficulty getting people to to speak out.
2: Well, let's talk a little bit about the criminal investigation itself, because I think there's a lot of places in this investigation, or lack thereof, where we see the way in which race shapes the rules. Is there a history in this police department of this kind of sloppiness, of this kind of intentional kind of looking away from cases like this? I mean, We know that it's a little bit complicated because this isn't a a clear-cut case of, you know, a a set of white officers, right, Um, making decisions about a case where a Black man is found hung from a tree, that actually there's Black people involved in this process as well. So I, I want people who are listening to understand a little bit more about this particular department and what their pattern and practice was around racially related uh, cases like this one. And I'm wondering if you can talk specifically as we discuss that about, you know, what you learned about this criminal investigation, in air quotes, as you were making this series.
0: I mean, if if I may, I want to answer that last question first and sort of zoom out a little bit in terms of what I learned about the criminal justice system as a result of doing this documentary. I think Mm -hmm. that, you know, what's really interesting and what we were hoping to get out of in this series is that the Warren family, they were a regular family, you know what I mean? Like they were a family that went to work every day. Sherry is a woman that has a job. She, she goes to work, she comes home, she makes dinner, she watches, you know, television, you know, these are like regular people who don't necessarily spend their lives studying the criminal justice system and what to do when something like this happens, right? And it's been very eye-opening of how this criminal justice system doesn't work. The entities that are supposed to be designed to justice don't even work together. They don't talk to each other. They don't complement one another. And so when you have a family like the Warren family who they just want the death certificate changed and you have one entity that's telling them, oh, you need to go to the medical examiner to get that changed. The police is saying we have no jurisdiction over that. That's the medical examiners, that job. And you go to the medical examiner and they say we have no jurisdiction over that. That's the police. And you have this family caught in the middle going, well, what am I supposed to do?
2: But sometimes they talk to each other. Right. Just to interrupt for a second. I mean, would we have had the same rigmarole and bureaucracy and the kind of Scooby-Doo,
0: everybody's pointing at each other, if this was a white affluent family? You're correct. I think that this would have been a completely different scenario had this family have been white. So it's it's kind of like that kind of racism is is infiltrated into the system, I mean, into the into the police force. And I think it does kind of affect and, and have a, a bearing on whether or not you take a case like Keith Horn, whether you take it seriously enough to take it to the next step or take it to the next level to investigate. It feels like there's been a lot of covering up and you know the police not giving information to the family you know just at the bare minimum the day that he died there was no autopsy conducted there was no in-depth investigation conducted the, the fact alone that there's no autopsy is kind of one of the big mishandlings of this case because now it makes it that much more difficult to pin down what really did happen to Keith the other part of this is that much of the evidence, what would be, what would have been evidence in this case has been destroyed, which which raises another red flag in this case of what happened, number one. And also, what are you hiding? You give the family the rope that he was hanging from. You know, the family's going, that's odd that the day after he he's found, you give us the rope? Aren't you doing, aren't you going to investigate? Aren't you going to take this rope and and look at it. Look at the fibers. Look at uh-huh. look at where, which direction they're facing. There was none of that, you know. And then to get a mes- message later that the tree was cut down, that he was hung from. There's these things that just raise a lot of questions in terms of you know the police and who they were asking questions. Many of the people who, the, you know, the people that were in the house where the nine one one call came from, many of them were not questioned. There was not a full investigation, a full question of what happened and what they saw, there's so many sort of holes that were left in this investigation that just, it just makes it hard to believe that this is what they said it was, which is a suicide. And again, I believe, I do believe that if Keith were white and he was hanging from that tree, we would have figured it out by now, what ha- what really happened to him. The fact that we're 35 years later and there's still all these question marks and the police department still doesn't see any reason to reopen th- open this case from their perspective. It's highly problematic. You would think that
2: given that Black lives are so much at the forefront of conversation today, that in the production of this docuseries, that people would want to talk, right? <laughs> that actually people would want to talk, that The police officers would want to speak, right?
0: Tell us about that. I mean, are they talking and what are they saying? I really thought that there would be someone who would come forward and say, this is what I know. This is what happened. And it was really heartbreaking. I want to say disappointing, but it was heartbreaking that to this day, they would not do it. I think one of the things that, especially while we were in production, while we were making those calls of trying to you know, book interviews, I think the thing that really broke my heart the most is that none of his friends would speak on camera. No one, no one. They would talk to us on the phone, you know, just to tell us what they think happened. I mean, it got to a point where we just wanted people to just say, Keith is a nice guy, you know, like we hung out and Keith was a nice guy and he, like people wouldn't even do that. And, you know, my hope is that, you know, when this series comes out, that people will see this and have a change of heart and, and come out and say something. But I will say that that was something that was shocking and heartbreaking that in this day and age and people are all about the culture and all this, like no one will speak up for this Black man, you know, even even after all this time.
2: I do wanna just ask you, Avril, this project, I imagine, must have taken some kind of emotional toll. How did you navigate working on this project and also
0: taking care of
2: your spirit?
0: You know, I think when I started this project, I, I kind of went into it with that anticipation that it was going to be emotionally heavy. And it's something that I had a lot of conversations with, with, you know, friends, with like, with my management, like with everybody, I had this conversation that this is, this is going to be rough. This is going to be a challenge. And I think I think I set out just trying to set a boundary for it, you know, and there were a number of, especially when we were in production and when, you know, when we were really in the thick of things, I found myself just, it might sound strange, but I found myself like talking to Keith and just being like, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry that the world did you this way. Like, I would just say that out loud. This was a life. This is a family that did not deserve what happened and did not deserve to be treated this way in the aftermath. So that's just something I started doing just to kind of keep my own head straight was just to be like, Keith, I'm really sorry that the world did you this way. That's right. I'm going to do everything in my power, like everything that I can with this series to let your story be heard, let your voice be heard. Let Mary Cooey's voice be heard, obviously for Sherry's voice to be heard. But yeah, it's, it's really hard to separate yourself from it. It just, it becomes a part of, becomes a part of you, becomes a part of your life. And it becomes a part of like what you think about every day. So as we wrap up,
2: I'm hoping that you can tell folks who are listening, what do you want them to take from this story and what's maybe one step they can take after they watch this story?
0: Yeah, I hope that they get from this story that this family was not served justice, right? I hope that they can 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 see that um, w- what was done to this family and how this family was treated in light of this case is wrong, is problematic. I believe that it's something that can still be rectified. I still don't believe that, even though I know that there are systems and there are processes and procedures in terms of getting a death certificate changed. I still feel like ultimately, what this family is asking for is not that hard. They're not asking for a conviction. They're not asking to put anyone in jail. They're not. They're not asking for any of that. All they're asking for is for the death certificate to be changed, a piece of paper to be changed from suicide to undetermined. And I think that's the least that we can do to this family, especially given everything that has come out since that point, I think that's the least, the least that can be done. I hope that people will become active and put pressure on the police department to relook at this case, to re-examine this case, to open it back up. So I hope that people who watch this really put pressure on the police department to help to listen to the Warren family, to help the Warren family, to go through those steps, to get the death certificate changed, but also that someone would come forward. And I think that that will help help in that process as well.
2: Avril, it's been wonderful talking with you. Thank you so much. And thank you for this incredible
0: project. Thank you. Thank you so much for for doing this and for hosting this podcast that's it for this week.
2: Thanks so much for listening to Uprooted, the companion podcast to the Discovery Plus series. I'm Alicia Garza. On the next episode, we'll take a deep dive into the role the police played in Keith Warren's case. And we'll also talk with Linda Sarsour, organizer and co-founder of the Women's March, who has been outspoken about addressing issues of policing and dedicated her life to fighting for equitable, humane treatment for all communities. Our injustice system is set up
0: is set up to protect police officers, and you know this better than I do, Alicia. Ida B. Wells said, "Those who commit the murders write the reports." And it always baffles me that when a young black man or woman or brown man or woman are murdered at the hands of the police, the first thing people will say, "But look at the police report. But look what the police said happened." And I want to remind them the police is the one with the trigger that murdered that person.
2: That's coming up next on Uprooted. For more on Keith Warren's case check out the miniseries on discovery plus uprooted is produced by now this for discovery plus in partnership with pod people special thanks to the production team at pod people rachel king matt sav ivana tucker jazzy johnson liz mack brian rivers vincent cachillon and amy machado